You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. It's the new Star Wars Landspeeder. Wow, looks like it's floating. The sand people are coming. It's up to Luke Skywalker and his Landspeeder to get us out. Action figures each sold separately. The Landspeeder has a snap-open space hatch, and Star Wars action figures R2-D2 and C-3PO fit right in back. Hurry, they're dancing. Activate spring glide wheels. The Force goes with us. Yeah. Kenner's new Star Wars Landspeeder. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest France. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we are going to be talking about a certain toy that I got when I was very young, and its modern version that recently came out. And by that, I'm talking about the Landspeeder, Luke Skywalker's Landspeeder from the original Star Wars. We are going to look at how this toy has gone from one of the most basic you know, original Kenner Star Wars toys to this most modern version that was put out uh, very recently and all its advancements and improvements and just to see the before and after and to talk about that, you know, it's really, really amazing what an incredible job has been done. And we'll give you a little background, obviously, on how the land speeder came about, the history of the design and all the inspirations for it and that sort of thing. Then we are going to jump to our posters of the month and this time around, we are going to do Fright Night and The Terminator, two great, great favorite films of mine. And we're going to try to dig a little deeper into, you know, the design of the poster and how they differ from previous ones and that sort of thing. So let's start with The Land Speeder. You can collect them all. You Batteries not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. I want to take the time to talk about one specific Star Wars toy that recently has been released in its latest incarnation. And by this, I'm talking about the Landspeeder, Luke's Landspeeder. This is a toy that I own the Kenner original version, and I now own the Hasbro six inch black line version. And there have been many built in between these two. Granted, the Kenner one was the first, and this Hasbro one is the latest. But in between, uh, we've had 
uh, micro machine versions, uh, different Hasbro versions, you know, but three and three quarter inch versions, die cast versions, all types. Uh, I'm sure that I'm even forgetting at this point that have been made Lego versions, you know, just about every single licensee probably has put out a version of the land speeder. And even way back during the Kenner line, they put out a remote control version of the Land Speeder. So, you know, the, the, this thing has been pretty beat to death by now in one way or the other. But I want to talk about the differences and the similarities in them and the advancements in them. But in order to do that, I have to start from the beginning in terms of giving a little bit of background as to how the Land Speeder came about. Now, the original intent of the Land Speeder, as far as Star Wars goes, as far as George Lucas goes, was that this was supposed to be Luke's hot rod, similar to how he had done American Graffiti, which is all about kids, you know, cruising in hot rods and that sort of thing. This was Luke's version of that. However, Luke, in comparison, I think, to most of the American Graffiti kids, is supposed to be a much poorer kid in a more isolated town than you know, where we're at in American Graffiti. Other people own land speeders. They're a little bigger. They're more family-oriented. And there are, in the background, you could see some other land speeders that are completely, you know, covered head to toe in terms of you, you, you ride inside of them and they're much bigger. And his was purposely made to look smaller. It's a convertible, which again, kind of goes with the hot rod type of mentality. And it's pretty beat up. This isn't a, you know, factory brand new sparkling shiny uh, vehicle. Again, part of it is the environment. This desert environment beats the crap out of this thing and it's got dents and bumps and scratches and it's missing pieces here and there, but it's the best that Luke can do and most likely for his character, this is probably the biggest luxury item he owns because, you know, he lives a pretty, you know, utilitarian type of basic life in the desert as the the adopted son of a moisture farmer. Now, the concepts for the land speeder can be found initially in two different locations. The biggest and most prominent of all is the Ralph McQuarrie painting of it. The other one is the Colin Cantwell model mock-up of it. The Cantwell one is very different than the finished product. It is the most different from the finished product because while it still kind of looks like a possible hovering kind of vehicle, it is not very slick and sleek <laughs> and aerodynamic looking. It is more of a circular type of vehicle. It does have its own little canopy section and, you know, the, the jets and the and the propulsion and all that stuff is there and the fins. But it's a very round, round type of design. Nothing like what we have at the end. The Ralph McQuarrie one is the one that resembles the finished product the most. And by that, you have to, if you look at your Ralph McQuarrie paintings, you know, the, the original inspirational paintings that George took around everywhere to try to get people to imagine what he was talking about is a painting that you have you're kind of watching this cliff on the left hand side on the top of this little cliff you have a land speeder you have what appears to be the droids and there's luke looking down possibly with binoculars down the cliff into what appears to be a town in the far far uh, horizon you know near some kind of mountain setting 
Now, the droids are obviously C-3PO and R2-D2. Luke at the time was not even Luke. Luke at the time is a girl. This was before the character was kind of split into different characters when the lead was a girl. So this particular version of Luke, I believe, has uh, a very long rifle in the back, which is something that kind of carried over into it. And if you look really, really carefully at the picture of Luke, or or I don't know if it's really Leia or whatever name the female character would have, you could see, if you really look, especially in the chest area, that this is definitely a girl. <laughs> But this is one of those pictures that you have to look for that. You you when you look at it, you're like, yeah, that's Luke looking down at you know Moss Eisley. That's that's pretty simple. It's pretty easy. But it's not that easy. Anyway, the point is not Luke or the droids is the land speeder. What you have there is McQuarrie's final version of the land speeder. You know, for those paintings, where you have it resemble pretty much what the last one will eventually look like. Uh, the only difference is, is that. You know, while it is hovering, the engines on the sides, they're not as round as they are in the final product. These are a little more flat, a little more uh, rectangular, if you will, with a slight curvature at the edges. And they seem to protrude off of the main body of the speeder with very fine, thin kind of wings towards the ends. So the connection is not as solid and, and as thick as with the final product. The entire capsule area where the seats are looks as if it's completely encased in some kind of a protective glass bubble. And it has two doors on either side of the bubble itself that are kind of folded up. Kind of like a, almost like a DeLorean type where the, the instead of the doors opening, you know, left and right, they open upwards. So they look like two other wings that are kind of floating up in the, you know, up from the top. Then this one also does not have the center engine that eventually it will have, but instead it has two fins, uh, which I guess are supposed to be for, you know, flying so fast that it kind of keeps it into kind of like a plane, you know, have, having a tail. Well, this has these two fins on either side that I guess it's supposed to keep in balance or whatever. So, you know, it looks like a very futuristic car that is hovering with slight wings on it when you really, really take a close look at it. Now, this was, like I said, the inspiration, I think, for what we ended up with at the end. However, even for George Lucas himself to be able to come up with certain ideas, you know, that he then kind of tells his artists like Macquarie or Cantwell or some other people what he's envisioning, there's a good, good chance, because we know he was a, a fan of, you know, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, you know, the, the old traditional serial type of um, science fiction characters, heroes, space heroes. There is a specific Flash Gordon animation, cartoon, if you will, from 1971, from a story by Michael Kaluta, Michael W. Kaluta. And in it, Flash Gordon is driving, riding this little kind of space car. And the space car resembles very, very much like what the speeder kind of looks like it has that u-shaped front it has those engines on the side that protrude to even more rounded engines you know coming off these little wings it has a little bubble cockpit this one also has a fin right in the middle instead of two fins on the sides like the mcquery concept this one has one big fin in the middle 
And, you know, the, if you look at the flying sequences, they look pretty close, you know, to what, uh, you know, the land speeder does in terms of how it was designed and resembles. So once they finalized what they wanted it to look like, and believe it or not, it took a while. So in other words, while they still have all this artwork as inspirational material to go about and try to get it done, I just finished reading a book called Cinema Alchemy by Roger Christian, who is the set designer and one of the art uh, people for Star Wars and some and many, many, many other films. And he talks about how they kind of had to do it in stages. They had to do a whole bunch of mock-ups first, real-size mock-ups, to try to figure out how to get this thing to work. So it wasn't done like they sometimes do it now, where they can do these small models, and then once they determine which one they're going to use with the small models, they move forward to building larger ones. This was done differently because they had to figure out how to make this thing not only what this thing is going to look like, but how to physically and, and mechanically make it function. You know, where will the wheels be? How they will be? How would they be hidden? How would they, you know, what kind of chassis was this thing going to have in order to support the weight of the actual vehicle? So they put together, you know, the art department, they put together this plywood version of the land speeder. And again, at first it looked very different because at first it did not have the round engines on the sides or the middle. It had more of these kind of flat kind of engines, you know, on the sides. It didn't have that middle one. And like I, like I said, this was one of the first designs where they realized that it was just way too big. What they were constructing was just not the size that they were really looking for because it was making it way too big and it was also hard to maneuver such a thing. So they had to go back and try again. And then the second time, once again, they had the problem that it was too large, but they kept trying to bring the, the size a little, you know, smaller in size because it's supposed to look tight. They wanted the actors to look like they're in a tight, small, little kind of race car looking thing. It's not supposed to look comfortable, especially when you have in a certain shot four characters in it. So the third time around, they actually designed it, I believe, on the chassis of a Volkswagen Beetle bus. Uh, so they were able to kind of maneuver things a lot better, but instead of having two wheels in the front, they had only one wheel in the front and two in the back, so it's kind of like a three-wheel vehicle. A little more like what we're used to seeing, you know, once we got, you know, to the final product. Now, this time they got the right size, but still they were having problems with, you know, maneuvering it. So at, at a certain point, they went to a different company who were also building these smaller cars. And I think some of them might have been used in some movies or maybe in some James Bond stuff or something like that. And they finally were able to nail it down and to have what we now are used to as the final design of the Land Speeder. What they ended up doing was they ended up constructing two. One of them on wheels, those three wheels we talked about earlier, and one of them that had no wheels, but it would be connected to this long mechanical arm, uh, like a crane kind of arm, that would just swing it around in a circle. So this way they can get shots of it slowing down or taking off without seeing anything underneath. So to, to be able to create that illusion of it hovering over the ground. So they, you know, they used that one. And then they had the other one, the one with the wheels, which is the one that 
They were used for very long shots uh, when you have everybody on it or that sort of thing. They would use that one too. Now, in order to disguise the wheels, uh, they used a whole bunch of different methods. When they were really far away, they tried using mirrors underneath so that the mirror would kind of mirror the the sandy, rocky uh, ground that they would be on. Uh, when they was really far away, the waviness of the mirror would kind of cause this um, mirage effect, which is pretty normal in the desert when you have a, a, an object from really far away. You know, you get that little uh, humidity, smoky kind of feel. And then at other times, they would be able to, through rotoscoping, through animation, basically insert a shadow underneath. So by inserting the shadow, they were also able to hide some of those wheels also. Now, this is something that eventually down the line, when they got to different versions of the home releases of Star Wars, especially the special edition of Star Wars and the future ones that came after that, they were able to digitally improve on those effects to be able to get rid of some of that, you know, wheel, you know, covering up. But that's primarily how it was done for the movie. So now going forward to the toys, uh, you know, we have our first initial land speeder that was sold and this is a vehicle that i used to have and i have again because i repurchased it many many years ago and overall they did a fantastic job with this vehicle it is big enough that it holds four figures you have your luke and your ben who could sit inside it resembles pretty much the one in the movie in terms of how it's painted more or less uh the color Obviously, it doesn't have any of the weathering or, or the stress uh, scratches and paint nicks and all that stuff that the, the one in the film had. Uh, because most of the toys, I remember, would be sold as if they were brand new. Is later on when they started releasing certain versions of certain toys with special stickers or special coloring. You know, you had your X-Wing, the dirty X-Wing and the clean X-Wing and same thing with the TIE Fighters. You know, they had multiple versions of some of these. But the Landspeeder is just a one-off uh, type of vehicle again unless you're talking about the remote control one but that's not what i'm talking about what i'm talking about one like i said it resembles everything pretty pretty close and what's amazing about it is like some of its extra features well the main feature is that they have to design a toy that resemble that hovering trick that the vehicle is supposed to do and the way they did it for the toy was that they actually created three wheels in the bottom that with the push of a lever, you could retract those wheels completely so you have a smooth, flat bottom. So if you want to hold the speeder and make it fly, you know, with your hand to kind of hold it and make it hover and do that sort of thing, that's fine. But if you also want it to roll like a typical toy car, and you have to remember, being able to roll like a toy car is a very big selling aspect when it comes to what is considered to be a boy toy. These Star Wars figures and ships were primarily targeted for boys. So being able to roll in that fashion as a traditional car, toy car would, is a big deal. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the dimensions are pretty good compared to the three and three quarter inch figures. Obviously, they could not make it exactly the same proportion as the film because overall, if you guys listen to some of our old shows, you kind of realize, and we talked about this, that for Kenner, even though they purposely decided to make the figures three and three quarter inch because they knew that if they were going to start selling spaceships, play sets, accessories, vehicles, you know, anything like that, 
they would have to be somewhat in proportion to the three and three quarter size. Anything bigger than three and three quarter size would then make everything else much bigger too. So if, for example, like they do now <laughs> with some items, have the six inch size figures, you know, the whole black line, six inch line now. If they would have had six inch figures back then and they would have to roll out, you know, all the accessories and all the vehicles and, and ships that they had in the past, these ships would have to be probably twice as big as they are now. However, the thing to keep in mind is that even though we're dealing with three and three quarter inch figures, the size of the ships that they made for these three and three quarter inch figures were still undersized. They were still slightly smaller than they should be. Typical example is your X-Wing. Think about the X-Wing in the film when we see it at the end in the uh, Yavin hangar. You know, Luke has to climb a ladder to get to the cockpit. Luke can walk under the wings by simply hunching his head down. Now here, for the toy, if you put the three and three quarter inch Luke, X-Wing Luke, standing next to the X-Wing, he pretty much is as tall as the tip of the R2-D2 that's on top of the X-Wing. <laughs> Maybe even taller. So they did have to sacrifice size for these vehicles and, and ships to be able to be made anyway. Granted, a kid really doesn't care that much. You know, us insane fans can have hours and hour long conversations about how the proportions are not exactly right. But kids don't care. And kids didn't care back then. The kids only cared about the fact that you had an action figure, you were going to put him inside a ship, and you're going to fly it around your house. <laughs> but, you know, that is one of the best examples. For a TIE fighter, it's a little different, I think, because even though the TIE fighter is also most likely undersized, just like everything else is undersized, it makes even less of a big deal because of the fact that we never actually see a TIE fighter in a hangar with a pilot climbing into it. You know, later on, you know, different movies, different TV shows, artwork, cartoons, you know, we kind of can tell now what the size of a TIE fighter is and everything. But back then, for toy purposes, it's pretty much in the same scale as the X-Wing. Now, again, the more you thought about it because of the X-Wing, you know, Luke standing next to it, you could tell there's a problem with the size. And even though we never saw a TIE fighter pilot standing next to a TIE fighter, we did see a TIE fighter chasing an X-Wing, and we can kind of tell that they're kind of in proportion to each other, you know, pretty much. You know, one is not 10 times bigger than the other. They're pretty much evenly shaped, not evenly sized ships, not obviously in terms of length, but, you know, the height, there's some, there's some things that your brain can connect. So when it came to the land speeder, the land speeder is pretty, pretty close, but again, traditionally, like everything else, they had to make it smaller. Now, why would they make it smaller? Like I said before, yes, it is because they would have to make it, if they did make it bigger, it would cost more. Some things would cost more than others. Now, here's something to keep in mind. An X-Wing, if you made it the proper size when you're dealing with three and three quarter action figures, it might be twice as big, maybe two and a half times bigger. Think about it. In order for Luke to walk under the wing that is folded down, that thing would have to be pretty damn tall. So, yeah, it would have to be pretty, and I think that even the nose would have to be much longer, too. Think about how Luke walked over the nose and during Empire Strikes Back as he's walking along the edge after the crashed X-Wing. 
With the Kenner figures and toys, there's nowhere near that. So if you have to spend twice as much plastic or even more in building this thing, you would have to charge your client twice as much. And that's one of the things they tried to keep the prices down. The smaller the ship, the less plastic, the less manufacturing, the less price. So on a ship like that, it would really be a killer to have to double or even triple the price because people just wouldn't buy it. With the land speeder, the land speeder, when you really look at it and you kind of measure it, they did kind of go a little short on it. The width seems to be pretty, pretty good, more or less, but the length seems to be a little tiny short. Now, the question then becomes, why would you then purposely make it smaller? Well, you could still save a little money from their perspective by making it a little shorter, it is a little less plastic. And it's also consistency. If you're already used to having all these toys being a little smaller than usual, and all of a sudden they give you one that's the proper size, it might kind of stick out too much. So maybe that's part of the reasoning too. The other great feature uh, with the Kenner Landspeeder is that you could pop the hood. There was a little button in the front, right at the tip of it. And if you pressed it, the hood would pop up and you would have inside a little sticker that you would place yourself of the engine. But in that hood, I remember we used to hide guns and lightsabers and any kind of little accessories we had from the action figures. And it would be great. The only problem I used to have with the land speeder was in trying to keep the figures on top from kind of falling off. And this is something that I found that many, many years later that this particular ship had an extra feature that I didn't know about. But before we do that... Let's compare it to the new one. The new Landspeeder, the one I'm talking about here, is the one that came out uh, about a year ago. I think it was a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive. It was first, I think, previewed at one of the last celebrations. Might have been 2017 celebration. I could be wrong. So this might, this is not that old. This is maybe a year old or even less. And what they had is... For the new six-inch line that they've been pumping out now for a while, that I think little by little they're trying to make this the standard line for everybody. I think they would love to get away from the three and three-quarter inch and be able to just go six-inch because they can charge you two, three times the price. Granted, the figures are gorgeous. The detail is amazing. The articulation is fantastic. And then little by little they started introducing accessories or additional Things having to do with these six-inch lines. Obviously, they haven't gone too crazy yet with size in terms of giant vehicles. But little by little, they're introducing vehicles here and there. Or creatures. And the Land Speeder is one of them. Now, the way that they rolled this thing out was that they have two versions. There's a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive that sold, I think, for something like $90. Which is a, an amazing price. Nowhere near what, what I would pay for anything like that. And then they would have a cheaper version available for retailers. The difference between the two, other than the fact that the first one, you know, the more expensive one was only an exclusive to San Diego Comic-Con, is that the paint application and the weathering was a little more detailed in this more expensive one. Plus, if you pop the hood and press the little button, you could actually see a part of the engine turning inside which is a cute little trick. It was a very nice, cute little thing. But other than that, in terms of features or 
things that the thing could do that's different, there really wasn't much difference. Later on, I believe they sold one in stores for, I think, either 50 or 60 bucks. This was the scaled-down version one. And by scale down, it means that basically it's not as detailed in weathering. It is exactly the same device. It has the same engine, except that it doesn't turn. You know, that little button that you have on the other one to make a turn. This one, the button doesn't work and nothing turns inside. But the plastic, the sculpting is all identical. I would say 90% of the painting is exactly the same. Now, what makes this so much different than the other one is that first of all it doesn't have any wheels in the bottom you could either hold it on your hand like you would the original you know with the retracted legs with the retracted wheels or you can place this clear plastic base on it so it kind of stands about i don't know a centimeter off wherever you place it to simulate that distance for you know for for the for the proper ratio of the figures that you have in this thing what can i tell you about this the inside is incredible it has all of these controls and joysticks and wheel and seat <laughs> it has the paint applications all over it where there are scratches you can actually see scratches along certain sections of the body you see like paint that's been flaked off of it resembling incredibly very close to what we see on film the front of it has a dent, like, like it got smashed against something, which is so cool. You have the three engines, you know, the three jet engines, and one of them is completely missing a cover. Like it was, I think, when the Tusken Raiders are kind of taking it apart. If you pop the hood, the hood has a section that's exposed. So even with the hood closed, you could see some of the internal workings of the engine. And then when you pop the hood, it's not like the original where you can store your guns in there. <laughs> no, this is a full sculpted hood you know the engine is there and there's pipes and all types of devices inside that you could look at and even the inside of the hood the cover itself it's all sculpted the design is just fantastic the amount of even though like i said this is not this special one this is just the basic one it is still incredibly sculpted now a couple of extra features that were not included, I believe maybe not in the film and also not in the original toy, definitely, is that back behind the seats where the droids sit, there's two panels there that you can pop up. And in one of them, you have some more engine type of stuff, but the other panel is empty. So that's a panel where you can keep in that box some little tidbits, you know, keep a gun in there or water bottle or whatever the hell you would put in there. <laughs> but it does have that, which is really, really cool. The other thing that you see here on the side of the, let's see, it would be on the driver's side, there's this one clip where you can snap Luke's gun, his long rifle uh, that he has in Tatooine. You could snap it there so it kind of hangs on the side of the land speeder as it's traveling. Because if you think about it, where the hell did Luke put that thing? <laughs> now, I didn't mention Luke. Just like in the San Diego Comic-Con exclusive... This particular vehicle comes with what I would consider to be the Gilligan Poncho Luke Skywalker. And that is because it is a typical, you know, Tatooine Luke Skywalker. But he comes also with a couple of extra accessories, including the poncho that he uses, the Gilligan hat with the goggles, the macro binoculars, the long, long, long rifle that he kind of takes when he goes after the Tusken Raiders. 
He is wearing a belt with a whole bunch of different types of, uh, you know, those little leather uh, attachments around it. And he comes with a fully extended blue lightsaber. Now, you can take this figure, pop him in there or not. I normally don't keep him popped in. But the best part about this that I wasn't planning on buying it. I mean, I really admire it when I saw it. And I was like, there's no way in hell I'm able to afford this. But a couple of months ago, I forget exactly when, they were offering it at Amazon for $20. I was like, what? This must be some kind of... And before I could even change my mind or even think about it twice, I snapped on it right away. And it came and it was probably one of the best bargains I've ever gotten for something of such high quality. Now, granted, I know it's not this exclusive, but... Normally, this would have been a $50 item or a $60 item, and it only costs 20 bucks. So, if you can get your hands on it, I strongly recommend it because you can see the progression of the toy, how it started and where it is now. It is just absolutely absurd how fantastic this thing looks. It is simply a work of art. Now, going back to the older one, the original one, one of the things I mentioned was that it had one additional feature that I only found that very recently because somehow it kind of evaded me all these years. If you put all your figures in the original Landspeeder, okay, you have your Luke and Ben in the front, just like in the movie. Makes sense. The droids kind of sit on top, kind of behind the seats. They don't have seats. They're kind of sitting on top of the actual body of the rear, you know, in between that middle engine. Which, when you think about it, really, it's like a... It's like that middle engine is such a dangerous thing because wouldn't like the air being would be sucked in through one part and then the air coming out of the jet part. So wouldn't it be super dangerous for Luke to, I don't know, a strand of hair get caught there or a piece of his clothing to get caught in there and get sucked into the engine. But hey, it's a movie. We can't really be so nitpicky, but that's that's what we do. But anyway, the droids sit back there. C-3PO pretty much sits more or less like a person. And R2-D2 is kind of down, you know, laying on his face, more or less, or on his back, if you will. C-3PO, it is possible, I imagine, I never really saw it that close, but it is possible that his legs are bent. Because when you look at the new one, not at the old one, the old one is built in a way where the back of the seat, there's no space for anything. The back of the seat then gives way to the back of the body of the vehicle. But on the new one... What's really interesting is in the back of the seat, there's still some space back there for something to fit, whether it's luggage, equipment, whatever. But I could kind of see how if C-3PO was sitting there, he could kind of put his legs behind the seats. There is space there. R2, forget it. There's nothing he can do in there. That space is way too small for him. But for C-3PO purposes, it kind of would make sense because... For him to be sitting the way that a three and three quarter figure sits, and remember, three and three quarter figures don't have knee articulation. So you have to sit him in that L position, like it or not, which was a little difficult when you think about it, because what would happen is it would kind of push his butt way, 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 way close to the edge of the ship, thereby making it a little difficult to keep it balanced. Same thing with R2, because, you know, he's got to be there, it's it's very, you know, wobbly the way it is. But in the original Kenner Landspeeder, something I found out recently that I never knew was there is that behind the seats, there are two peg knobs, foot peg knobs, one for R2 and one for C-3PO. And the reason they're there is so you can actually take the figure 
and slide them into that peg knob on, on their feet. Same thing with, with R2-D2. He has a little peg hole. And secure them so that when you do move this vehicle around, they don't just fall right off like they normally would fall off. So that's a cute little thing that sometimes we never knew about it or, I don't know, maybe we just forgot it existed. But, you know, when I finally re-saw it again and or people were telling me about it, I'm like, is that true? And then you go and check it out. He's like, you know, it is true. It is there. And it was one of those moments where it's like, oh, my God, I wonder if there are other things that these old, you know, Kenner Star Wars related figures and, you know, play sets and ships had that we either were not aware of or found that way, way later that these things existed. Well, apparently we did. Through Facebook, some of the different Star Wars or, you know, uh, action figure groups that I belong to, somebody posted all of a sudden that the Han Solo, the Hoth Han Solo, that happens to have a holster. But it's a weird holster because you can't really stick anything in the holster. But it does have the strap of the holster, you know, that, that, that part that would normally go around a gun to keep it in place in the holster. There is a lot of people that seem to be able to take his traditional Han Solo blaster and use one of the knobs or one of the holders, let's say, and slide it into the holster so Han could have his hands freed while the gun is placed in the holster, which is like, oh my God, I've never ever heard of this. And some people are even saying that they, it's featured in the commercial. So I started looking for the commercial. I couldn't find it. But I'm trying to figure out, is, is this was this intentionally made that way? There are plenty of holsters in other figures, and none of them have that loop, that open loop design. The other one is, if you guys remember the Bush figure, Leia disguised as the bounty hunter Bush. Well, apparently, you can take that long, long gun <laughs> that she has and attach it to her back. So it's almost as if she's carrying it on her back, I guess, with a strap or something. But it seems to be able to attach to whatever is hanging off her back. Not only that, but I've seen pictures of the helmet. If you remove the helmet and you remove the gun, you can attach both those things to her back. And people are claiming that that was specially designed for that. So you could do that. Which is like, oh my God, I've never heard of this. Now, there are little, I guess, I don't know if you can call them bonus things or hidden things that you only find out through reading some of these crazy stories. If you own the, let's see, the Y-Wing, the original Kenner Y-Wing, if you look at the stickers before placing them inside and all over the actual ship, there is one sticker where the word Jane is kind of written in part of the characters of the design of the sticker. And the story is that this was by a designer who her name was Jane, so she kind of put her name on it. A similar situation is with the Dagobah playset, the original Empire Strikes Back Dagobah playset. There is a molded, it's either a snake or a tree root or something like that, where you can actually read the word Emily on it. And apparently, this was apparently the designer's daughter's name. And the guy kind of hid her name <laughs> on the uh, on part of the uh, sculpture. On Empire, we also have the Imperial playset, which is really the bounty hunter playset, if you will. I forget exactly the name of it. But in it, there is a feature in it, and it's written on the instructions or on the box itself that kind of previews what you're playing with 
or, or one of the features. And it talks about an area of the toy where Vader can talk to the Grand Visor. Well, you're like, well, what the hell is the Grand Visor? In Empire, there was no Grand Visor. Vader doesn't talk to – Vader talks to the Emperor in one scene. He doesn't talk to anyone else. Well, apparently, again, what I'm hearing is that in one of the earlier versions of the script, before Vader can communicate with the Emperor, he first has to kind of communicate with one of the Emperor's lackeys, one of his advisors or whatever, and one of them is this Grand Visor. So somehow, part of that playset, they made a section for that based on that original script note that, hey, this is going to be something in the movie that you might want to incorporate into this uh, playset. Now, this is a very unusual playset because it tries to be a lot of things and it kind of doesn't. <laughs> so, for example, they basically wanted to do a Star Destroyer setting, okay, which is impossible, obviously, because of the size. So they tried to create uh, some kind of a playset that would include certain areas of that. So you have kind of like Vader's room there, and you have where the bounty hunters meet and where the officers are, are, are using their machines and their controls. But it really doesn't mesh too well. I know it has a handle, so you can kind of carry it and float, you know, walk around with it like it's a ship, but it's it has no real shape. Uh, I'm also told that you could dock it with a Millennium Falcon, which I am not sure if that's possible. <laughs> I would have to read a little more into that. Another thing that's very rare that most people have not been able to find, but that, that it apparently it does exist. One of the unproduced figures was a Luke Skywalker in Jedi robes that was supposed to come out at a way later, later point. And this was a Luke, which as opposed to the Return of the Jedi, where Luke is wearing the black outfit and then they gave him a robe on top of it. This is supposed to be a Luke that has the molded Jedi robes, similar to how Ben Kenobi has the molded robes or the Emperor has the molded robes, as opposed to trying to put him in some kind of a soft good. Well, this is something that apparently made it to, I think, a catalog a long time ago galaxy far far away but they were able to pull that completely before it got that far so at some point they were going to put it out and i guess that somewhere prototypes existed and they've been lost in the shuffle but aside from those you know molds or sculptures of what it was supposed to look like they apparently did have one that was fully painted to be used for catalog purposes the Adat Commander was also a weird figure because it was sold as an Adat Commander, even though that in the movie it's General Veers, the only Adat Commander that we see, but it was never carded in that manner, except in Canada. In Canada, apparently, they did release at some point, and it looked very hoshpodgy type of uh, quick repackaging type of thing, but they apparently did it at some point, repackage the Adat Commander as General Veers, which kind of makes sense because that is what that character is based on. The famous rocket-firing Boba Fett is one that, obviously, we all know the story that it never really made it to the public because of the possible choking hazard. So that means that that thing was never carded. It was never included in anything. You could never buy it. You would never get it, period, period, period. I get it. However, they did card one once for the 1978 New York Toy Fair. They used a final product one, a sample most likely, a prototype sample, and they carded it with the actual Boba Fett card. 
and they took it to the show. And eventually, many, many years later, it actually found its way into the uh, marketplace. And it's, I believe it's probably still in the process of trying to be sold. There was a feature on one of these pawn shows where they tried to sell it, I think for a hundred in 50 grand, but they would only be offered a hundred. So the, the sale never happened. This is years ago. So I don't know what it's up to now. I don't know if it got resold or if the guy's still holding on to it. I'm not sure. The famous vinyl Cape Jawa. This is a figure that is one of the holy grails of vintage Kenner Star Wars collecting. And most of us are under the impression that the vinyl Cape Jawa only came with Star Wars. Well, apparently a few. Australian versions of the vinyl Cape Jawa were released. They were found. They seem to be authentic. However, the vinyl Cape is a slightly different shade, but it kind of corresponds with the fact that some of these foreign markets, there are color variations because of where they're coming from. But what's interesting is that this was carded under the Empire Strikes Back card, which is really, really odd because... Everybody was under the impression that they kind of pulled a plug on it way before, you know, than that. There's also uh, proof that originally, and we talked about this before, the Emperor figure, which is a solid plastic robe figure. And I kept talking about how come they never made it a soft good version of it. Well, apparently the designs were made, the drawings were done, this, the, the prototypes were made of an Emperor that could be covered in soft goods and without having the plastic hood on his head he would have the bald you know shriveled up head and apparently they decided it just didn't look right you know with the claw sometimes the when they use soft goods i would say especially if you look at your jedi luke sometimes the soft goods are just yes they do help but sometimes they don't help they're just sometimes they're too thick they don't wear too well they're too thick sometimes and apparently that's what the problem was with the emperor figure it was just going to look a little over the top so instead they decided to continue with the solid plastic the other interesting thing about the jawa is that the fact that it had any kind of soft good or vinyl cape was kind of like a last minute addition because if you ever look at the original 12 back art the art you know you can find the art in the books you can find the art in the back of the cards when you look at those 12 figures they all pretty much look like what the final ones look like except for two of them the jawa is one of them that does not have an additional robe or cape on top of what it's already there if you strip any jawa off the cape or robe it looks exactly like what it was supposed to look like on the picture but it is speculated that the reason they decided to throw something extra on the Jawa was to just give it a little more value because they were afraid that a figure that small for a customer to be charged the same price as a bigger figure, a figure twice as big or three times bigger, that they would kind of feel, you know, slightly ripped off. So they added an extra cape or a robe for extra value. The other figure that is also a little different is the Obi-Wan. If you look at the art for the Obi-Wan figure, it is not a solid color robe that he's wearing. It's a multicolor robe. There is the orange, but then there's also this very light tan underneath. And even a black interior shirt looks very, very different than the solid kind of orangey brick color that Obi-Wan ends up being as 
one of the original 12 figures. So those are the two ones that are the most different. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of little things that, believe it or not, you know, all this time later, you know, I'm finding out about extra features, extra things, things that I never knew existed. Um, and part of it is through, you know, examining and comparing, you know, these different type of figures and accessories and ships and vehicles. As I mentioned before, this kind of started when I noticed that peg hole in the back of the original land speeder. Well, guess what? The new land speeder, they don't include those peg holes. <laughs> they don't have those peg holes. So part of the reason I think it's because with the six inch line, you probably can't take C-3PO and bend his legs at the knees so he can slide his, his legs behind the seats into that little cubby hole that you have on the newer version of the land speeder. Now, R2, ooh, that's a tough one. I don't know what you're going to do with R2 because the space to me looks like it's so damn small. <laughs> and I don't know how he's going to keep from falling off of it if I start to grab it and like kind of like twirl it around. <laughs> so, in a way, the original Kenner one, I think it's a safer one uh, as far as being able to keep all the figures in their place. Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies, all of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants, take a look when you visit their site. They have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to the Toys R Us report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. Movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots. And let's continue with our show. For today's Posters of the Month, we are going to hit two 80s, what I consider to be classics once again. I'm talking about Fright Night and The Terminator. Uh, let's begin with Fright Night. Fright Night has always been one of my favorite 80s horror comedies, which is a, an unusual little genre because to me, many times you try to do a horror comedy, it falls apart. But with Fright Night, I absolutely loved it. I saw it in the theater. I love the music in the film, became a huge fan of Brad Fidel, you know, first through, ironically, Terminator and, you know, then Fright Night and then many other films that he's done. But this one also brings, if you guys remember, Roddy McDowell, which, you know, another genre uh, legend from Planet of the Apes, into this weird, cheesy, uh, late night movie of the, of the week kind of, uh, you know, theme which is a, a theme that I hadn't really been that familiar with, even when I saw the movie. You know, later on, I kind of understood that in many parts of the country, many television stations would have these late-night movie hosts that would air the most god-awful movies, uh, and they would host them, and they would be really bad, not only actors in, you know, these the movies that they're showing, but the hosts themselves were super cheesy. Uh, here in, in Florida, I know we have something called Svengoolie, which I don't know where it's airing from, but it is that kind of 
thing. It's it's a very cheesy late night host kind of showing black and white or or, or not some you know older super. I'm talking about C D F level movies here, but that was kind of like the theme of this film. It was that this this is what this host does, and this is what the kid is a fan of, and that's how they kind of build a movie around it. With the Fright Night poster, they take a very creepy approach at the promotion. And and a lot of the posters I've seen for Fright Night seem to kind of come off of this one. This one is is basically you get a a kind of like a blue and black shady uh, motif. Uh, You get a shot of the house and you see the shadow of probably Peter Dendrich, you know, the, the vampire there, you know, with the two trees on the side. And over the sky, you know, with the bright full moon, you get all these ghostly looking images of creatures with fangs coming out of the house and then dead in the middle you have the face of a vampire kind of creature that could be you know when you look at it it's kind of, it could be the vampire or it could be the girl that later turns into a vampire at a certain point in the film it could be either one of them if you really think i think it's more to me it looks more like the girl to tell you the truth so that's what i'm shooting for now i love researching the background but this one and the next one were super super tough and the most I was able to find about this particular poster is that the artist of the poster is Peter Mueller that apparently worked for a company called BD Fox Independent back when they used to do posters for a ton of 80s movies. But unfortunately, this kind of will fall, I think, under the realm of agencies where this wasn't done by a top-notch, uh, you know, superstar poster maker like some of the you know, the Amselbs and the and the Struzans and, you know, those kind of people. This was done more for an agency artist. And, man, is it tough to find out any information. You know, any type of Google searches you do, you cannot link that name to any other posters other than this one. And I don't know how the, you know, the connection ever, you know, got made. I got as far as to find a Facebook page for the agency where people are asking that same question to the on the Facebook page, asking, is there any information you can give us on on this artist and how this whole thing came about? But no, the, I believe the, the agency has also probably exchanged hands a number of times, and it's, it's kind of lost out there. So it's kind of difficult to find any information having to do with this. And this is tough. Again, when, you know, when dealing with the agency, sometimes they're gun for hires, and you just don't know, especially if you go way, way back to the 50s and 60s and stuff like that, where they really uh, pumped out a lot of posters without them being, you know, knowing, without the public knowing who these posted artists are. But this particular poster, I remember, was also featured in a similar way in the album, the LP. When I bought the LP, I remember I bought the soundtrack because I absolutely love the music in this not only did it have, you know, it's a typical soundtrack where you have your score by Brad Friedel, which is an amazing score, and your rock kind of tunes to go along with the movie, you know, your soundtrack part of the score soundtrack, which had a very similar picture in the front, except that the words Fright Night were in red. And for some reason, I think the reason I remember it being in red more is because I had that album, you know, in my hands for so so long. But the poster, I don't remember exactly when I bought it. I did buy it originally. It's an original poster that I have. But I don't know if I ever really displayed it, to tell you the truth, because, I don't know, I guess I had so many other posters to display that this one didn't make any kind of rotation. But now it's getting its its moment, its month in the, uh, you know, in the, in the podcast studio. The other thing about the poster is that, uh, you know, you, you, these things usually have a, a tagline. And this one is, 
there are some very good reasons to be afraid of the dark. That's way, way, way on the top. Then you have all the art. In the bottom, you have the word Fright Night. And what's cool is that they took the uh, the F and the T in Fright and the bottoms. They made them kind of spike downward, kind of like fangs. And underneath the title, it says, if you love being scared, it will be the night of your life. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the little tagline, I guess, they use for the poster. And anyway, you know, you always wonder who comes up with these things. I, I doubt it's the director or anybody in the production. I think it's, this is all agency or studio related, you know, decisions that are made. You know, especially when you're dealing with somebody who maybe doesn't get that involved or doesn't have that much clout. Uh, the director, Tom Holland, was also uh, pretty well known for the movie Child's Play, the original Child's Play. Which was a very good movie also uh, with Chris Sarandon, who's in this movie too. The movie had a sequel, Fright Night 2, which I barely remember it, and I think it was pretty horrible. And later, uh, it was uh, remade. Colin Farrell as the uh, as the vampire. Uh, so, you know, not as successful, but kind of tried to capitalize on a lot of the aspects of the film, including some of the logo work was pretty similar. But the original is really the, the good one, the one that I enjoy the most. And yeah, this is an interesting poster. It's a little weird in a way because the poster is lacks color. It's dark and blue, and that's the colors you get to play with the most. And I'm really surprised that they did not purposely put red in the title of Fright Night. Fright Night is in white. Uh, like I said before, in the album it's in red, and it just looks so much better. It makes the poster pop a little more. However, if you start looking at some of the international posters and, you know, all these little offshoot posters, additional rearranging of the art and that kind of thing, uh, you know, they do play with the colors a little more. But it is kind of surprising to me. when I, Whenever I look at this poster, I kind of think, I always think that the poster is the, uh, the, the colors that they used on the album, but it's not. It is kind of void of that red and it just doesn't make sense to me because you know you're dealing with vampires you gotta have the color red in there somewhere uh, you know if you think of lost boys and bram stoker's dracula you know there's a lot of red in those posters but this one you know this is the type of movie that i don't mind watching every now and then because it's just a fun movie the next one is the terminator i mean we don't get any more classic than the terminator and the terminator's poster is a little unusual but Maybe not. Uh, you could kind of say it's the transitioning of what was eventually happening, and that is going from art to photos, specifically photos of your star. Uh, we got to remember here, Schwarzenegger is coming off of Conan, a movie that did not make him a superstar, but everybody started saying, who's this guy? You know, it kind of got everybody's attention. Then with The Terminator, that's what made him a superstar. So, obviously, when they're making this movie, they don't know what they got on their hands. And usually, traditionally, everybody, you know, the studios are usually uh, not very uh, trustful and hopeful <laughs> of whatever product they have on their hands. And that is documented when you read some of the interviews with Cameron about how, you know, the promotion and the marketing of the film really wasn't that strong. The movie became a sleeper blockbuster, more or less, which obviously catapulted Cameron, catapulted Schwarzenegger, got us a franchise out of this movie. But at the time, if you look at the poster, it is kind of a basic poster. The poster I'm talking about right now is the one sheet that has Schwarzenegger in red on top, a full medium shot of Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. He's wearing a leather jacket, no shirt. So you kind of see his, his chest kind of open 
right through the V of the jacket, this leather jacket he's wearing. He's holding a, a gun, which is the gun from the movie, and he's wearing his, his dark sunglasses, his gargoyles, very interesting uh, gargoyles, and superimposed on the gargoyle on the, let's see, his right eye or his bright lens, you could see CSM-101, which is the specific model of, of uh, you know, Cyberdyne uh, Terminator model that he has. I could be wrong, but it could, it could be Cyberdyne system model or something like that. And then you have the inscription in the, you know, right on top of the title, which says, In the year of darkness 2029, the rulers of this planet devised the ultimate plan. They would reshape the future by changing the past. The plan required something that felt no pity, no pain, no fear. Something unstoppable. They created... And then you have the logo for the Terminator, which is the traditional Terminator logo. And all the credits underneath. Um, what's interesting about this poster is, once again, as I mentioned before, I cannot find any material about who designed it. Obviously, it's not an artist. This was a, a photo shoot, basically. They're using a photo, which is a photo that's not a stock photo from the film itself. It's a photo from some kind of a shoot, some kind of a promotional shoot that they did. And... I've seen photos of this film. You can find them online of Schwarzenegger, you know, in different costumes, wearing different things. But this particular photo, you can kind of find a cluster of photos of him dressed in this manner. He's got the spiky hair, kind of spiky hair, not the hair from the beginning of the film. The beginning of the film, if you remember, he has kind of wavy hair. But then after he... They set him on fire at one point at the uh, at the uh, disco that where they're all dancing and his hair uh, gets all spiky. I guess as a result of the fire. Uh, so he, I guess he's supposed to be in this spiky phase of of the character. <laughs> he doesn't have any scars on his face or injury, so he's he's clean. Obviously, you can't see the eyes because he's wearing the uh, the sunglasses. And even though the sunglasses, most likely you could probably see his eyes through the sunglasses, especially in a picture this large. They chose, I believe, to purposely airbrush black near the eye so you don't see the eyes to, to kind of create that feel of, you know, you don't know what's inside of him. And yes, they did airbrush also the uh, CSM-101, which is the only thing that's kind of unrealistic about it, because in the movie, obviously, you never see that in his eye. You see the red eye later in the movie, but this is something they could have done in this poster, but they didn't. And even forward from his face, the gun that he's holding is slightly out of focus, especially his fingers, because I guess the focus is basically on his face. So to be that close, I guess, to the to, to, to your subject, uh, whatever's in front, your foreground will be slightly out of focus. This is a photo, like I said, that comes from some kind of photo shoot because I have seen pictures of him in the same outfit in different poses. In the background, it's all black, but there are these red streaks behind them, which I guess could kind of give you the image of lasers or laser sights, which is what's supposed to be coming out of his the gun that he's holding. You know, it's kind of laser sighting, you know, on the gun. There are other pictures, like I said, of this particular shoot of him in different poses, and sometimes they have used some of them, not so much on posters, but on some promotional material as alternative promotional material that was kind of discarded, really, because, you know, when they figured out they were going to use this one. Now, I've seen international posters that are completely different, obviously, and there is one very most likely uh, poster that comes out of this, which is exactly like this, except that they airbrush 
half of his face, his, let's say here, his left side of his face, so they can airbrush it so it looks like his skin is peeling off and there's a machine underneath. So you kind of get this half face, neck, partly chest area that it exposes the robot part of him. Obviously, for the American audience, you don't want to do that because you don't want to give away the... The hook of the movie, which is at the end, you know, where all of a sudden the skin comes off and it's just a robot, you know, chasing them around. But this is a different strategy altogether for marketing a film. This is something that historically has happened. And that is you get away from the film and you are more interested in promoting the star. You know, you've got Schwarzenegger's name right on top. And this is something that you're going to end up with all through the 80s where... The number one thing they're promoting is the star. That is what's driving the movie, and that's what's driving the marketing and the promotion. So Schwarzenegger's name is practically, I mean, his letters are even bigger than the title of the film. That's how much it's important. And it's also important to show his face to be the size of the poster more. You know, it's half the poster is his face and his chest. Three quarters of it is all that. So that is something where... Uh, again, the promotion of the film is is very different. Now, don't get me wrong. When they put the poster for Terminator 2, which they already knew they had a hit on their hands to begin with, and now they're having a bigger hit, they kind of had the same idea. They put Schwarzenegger's name on top, except he's on a motorcycle this time. So you kind of shrink him a little bit in, in, as far as real estate goes. But it is interesting that, you know, you have this sci-fi film, action sci-fi, and instead of doing uh, some kind of design that you see him... Obviously bigger than everybody else because he is the star. Okay, we know we get that. But instead of having him and other players in the movie all around in the poster, they said, screw it, we're going with him. He's the money. He's the guy who's going to be generating tickets. People are not here to see sci-fi. They're here to see Schwarzenegger. So that's kind of like the understanding that was, I guess, accepted as far as how to market this film, uh, which is something that I guess even somebody like Cameron either agreed with or didn't care or played along with. You know, he gets to make the movie he wants. He doesn't really care how it's marketed as long as it's marketed right. The first film was under-marketed, but because of word of mouth and reviews, I remember watching, I think it was Siskel and Ebert, and how they were praising this film. They were like, this is a little sci-fi film that is amazing, and this, this guy Schwarzenegger from Conan the Barbarian he plays this character so well. Yeah, this is, uh, uh, you know, soon to become a classic, you know, kind of movie. And yeah, that's what happened. This movie just exploded. And that poster did become, you know, the, the, the go-to, uh, logo poster for, for the film. Now, yes, they did have other things that they were selling at some point, and, you know, they didn't merchandise this film too much, but future DVD versions and Blu-rays, they've alternated art. This particular art, I believe, was part of the first wave of the art, you know, your first VHS, you know, your first laser discs, you know, that kind of stuff. But as we progress, and they do this all the time, as you progress with different media throughout uh, time they alternate the art they look for new art they create new art they have new artists kind of redraw the art you know all kinds of things like that so odds are this original poster you will not see on most of the new stuff that's out there you know for the film they rather use newer things i do remember 
but this because this happens all the time you know when you have a movie like this that is not expected to be a gigantic hit and for a kid my age i mean this is probably 1984 i think so you got to keep in mind this guy in a couple of years cameron two years later he goes and makes aliens there was no merchandising for this film this film was not expected and there's a typical story where if you're lucky you can get your hands on a soundtrack and you can get your hands on a a movie tie-in novel, and and I did get those things. I, those were the only things that were available. But like for example, the you know he wears these cool cut-off uh, gloves, leather gloves, you know, like kind of biker gloves type of deal, like a driver gloves. So yeah, those were really cool. Uh, his sunglasses, those gargoyles became, you know, the go-to sunglasses to find. And I remember I did get a pair. I ended up buying a pair. I think I spent something like fifty bucks or sixty dollars, which back then was a lot of money for a pair of sunglasses. But these are special sunglasses. And what's funny about these gargoyles is that they really look good on Schwarzenegger because of his particular facial features. On most other people, they usually look too big. And you know, he's got a very muscular, bony jaw line, you know, that kind of fit those glasses. But I remember they were selling knockoffs of those glasses, and I could be wrong, but I do remember that at some point, maybe with the VHS purchase or something like that, they would include a version of them that were not the real ones. And I remember that, yeah, I ended up, I ended up finding the real ones, and uh, I was like, I still have them somewhere. I should, I should find them because that is something that is part of my collection. <laughs> they probably ended up in in one of my cars. It's probably in the glove compartment of one of my of one of the cars we have around here, and it's, it's like, no, that those should be. Those should be, uh, you know, in a better location than hidden in a car or in a box somewhere. But this is a great poster. Unfortunately, when I got it, it was folded. So I do see the crease lines. I can still see the crease lines. But it's in pretty good shape for, for, for what I'm doing with them. And yeah, it's like, like I said, it's a different time. It's just a whole different time. It's a movie that wasn't expected to be so successful. It's Schwarzenegger's career about to explode with this film. You know, it's it's a very uh, monumental thing and Cameron I mean again same thing with Cameron Cameron exploded after this just like Schwarzenegger and they collaborated in, in a number of other films afterwards so uh, you know that wraps up our two posters of the month all right I hope you guys enjoyed today's show we started off with Luke Skywalker's Landspeeder the actual toy the Kenner toy that is part of that first wave of initial vehicles for the Kenner Star Wars line and how it's changed to its most recent incarnation of it, this fantastic new one that Hasbro has put out. And then we jumped over to our posters of the month, an ongoing piece that we've been doing for a while now, you know, rediscovering all these old posters I have hidden in, in my closet here. And we hit The Terminator and Fright Night, two fantastic films from my childhood that I really don't mind watching over and over again. So on behalf of everybody here, thank you for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. From a future where men must hide underground has come a machine wrapped in flesh who kills but cannot be killed. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Terminator, an assassin from the 21st century sent back through time. His target is a woman who holds the key to the future. 
Her only hope is a soldier who has hunted the Terminator from the future into the present. He's not a man. Machine. Terminator. Where does it want to be? It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop. Until you are dead. Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at GeekFestRants. I don't know what we're yelling about! GeekFestRants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>